0: Hey, good morning. up here.
1: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. A little bit of a Spartan crowd this morning. However, we have some folks we haven't seen in a while. We say welcome back. Um, we have a couple of announcements. Uh, we need to be prayerful about the deficit that we're already running in this short, short time of the year already. Uh, please be faithful about that and prayerful. Days of Praise, Acts and Facts are all available. We got a huge stack up on the front of the, the pew. Some interesting stuff in there. Well, them Democrats are everywhere, aren't they? Oh, that that was that was uncalled for. I apologize. Um, communion service next Sunday, and what's not in our our bulletin as we discussed it uh deacons want to sponsor another another uh dinner communion dinner it'll be uh chicken themed base uh, everything around the chicken so if uh you want to come up pardon me potluck style dinner but uh based on a, on a chicken and uh so anything pertaining to that bring that uh Well, uh you can get with us through the week and uh and uh see what what uh we think you need to bring and uh not well, We
0: bring the chicken the, the deacons.
1: All right, pastor wants the deacons to provide the chicken. We can do that. And then you guys provide all the goodies. Yeah. Okay.
2: Sides and
3: desserts.
1: Sides and desserts. Okay. Uh let's Let's cast lots on that one. Okay, see see where it takes us. Could be interesting. Okay. We are Baptists after all. Okay. Our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Isaiah 51 Verses 1 through 11. Let's stand together as we bring our service, an opening in prayer. Dan, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer. Please remain standing.
3: You take your red hymnals this morning and turn to number 470, 470 in the red. that your hand? you go ahead. It's okay. Is it solid rock? A solid rock. Is that in the? Uh, well, let's find one of them. We'll decide. <laughs> the so, is that in the red, Jared?
2: It's in
3: both. I don't see it in the red. It'd be under a different four four the yeah. I did not see it in the No, that's that's um that's the solid. Are you, are you thinking on Christ a solid rock I stand. other ground is sinking sand. Yep. What's the title of it? <laughs> <laughs>
2: I up my hope solid rock.
3: And Is it 402? 402. Oh, we were so close. Thank you, Marcy. 402. In- all right, Naomi, after all of that, do you have a reason? All right. Okay. All right, thank you. 402.
2: 404. We don't know.
3: So you were right dale 404 in the brown 404 we'll get there eventually 404 in the brown we're gonna wait just another second here This covenant is born. Support me
1: Once again, stand with us as we go through our scripture reading for the morning.
4: <clears throat> Are you ready?
1: Yes, It's uh, the, the scripture is taken from John 10, verses 1 through 18. 16. 66 in your pure bible
4: john 10 i tell you the truth the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber the man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep the watchman opens the gate for him And the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. And leads them out. When he was brought out all. uh, When he has brought out all of them. His sheep follow him because they know him. They know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact they will run away from him. Because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come, whoever come before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Oh, 18? Okay, sorry. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will hear, uh, will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Um, That's it. This command I received
1: May the Lord add his blessing to this holy and inspired scripture.
3: You take your brown handle this time and turn to number 468. 468 in the brown.
0: Our scripture text is John chapter 10. As we continue to work through this series on the passion of Christ. We looked last at the question, what is the cross about? We noted that the cross was determined in the plan of God as the only way. To be forgiving to sinners and just in punishing sin. This he did in his son. Who as the lamb of God placated God's just anger for sin and opened the way for God to be merciful to all whom Jesus represented on the cross. Now today's study seeks to determine just who Christ represented on the cross. I mean, the question is asked, was his death for all sinners who ever lived, past, present, future? Did Jesus stand in the place of judgment for every man, woman, woman, And child in the world are all saved, are all forgiven? Do all go to glory to be with God at death? Is all mankind promised resurrection and life eternal? Even an elementary knowledge of the Bible's teaching indicates that not everyone is saved from the consequences of their sin. How do you know that? Well, there's a hell as well as a heaven. And and that's described in the Bible. Incidentally, more times than heaven is described. There are people the world over who hate God. They despise Jesus Christ. And they die that way without ever repenting. So it would be ludicrous to suggest that the payment for sin of Jesus' cross applies to all mankind. Now, this is quite revolutionary to some. They have never thought of this. They just assume that Jesus is the Savior of men, whether they want him to be their Savior or not. They take it for granted that since God is a God of love, He would never send anyone to hell, at least not a good person. I mean, hell is reserved in their minds for murderers and rapists and child molesters and gangsters. These deserve hell, but the others don't. God knows how to sort things out to tell the difference between the morally upright and the down-and-out sinner. That's the way people think. Then there's another group, the evangelicals, so-called, who would say that Jesus died for all men. He paid the price for their sin, but such payment is like a kind of like a bank account. Forgiveness and mercy is deposited, but those things do not become applicable unless a person withdraws from the account. This scenario views salvation as a provision, as something God provides, but does not necessarily procure for men. He leaves it up to the individual to want to be saved, to actually choose Jesus to be his or her Savior. If they do, they'll be forgiven. If they don't, they won't. But in either case, the blood of Jesus was spilt to cover their sin. That is the view. May I say that neither of these scenarios is supported by the Bible. The love of God is not expressed towards all men in having Jesus' death cover their sin, regardless of men's indifference to Jesus' as Saviour. And neither is Christ's payment for sin put into a spiritual bank account for all, which becomes applicable only if the sinner himself chooses to tap into it. Forgiveness and mercy is neither a right for all, nor a reward for responding a right. It's not a universal blanket of God's love to every sinner nor is it a prize to be won by making right choices. The Bible's position on Jesus' crosswork is that it is of God's grace from start to finish. Grace means that the recipient, in this case the sinner, is not redeemed, is not forgiven, is not cleansed because of anything innate in his or herself nor because of some action they do such as having faith in Jesus or repenting of their sin. The Bible always takes the position that grace is canceled or nullified when works are introduced. There cannot be a partnership arrangement in which we say, well, God has his part to do, but then we have our part to do. I don't care what the percentage is. The percentage could be, well, 99.5% is God's grace. Only 0.5% we contribute to that grace or we will be destroyed. Well, I'll tell you what is destroyed in that view, and that's grace is destroyed. Listen to Paul. As he quotes God's answer to Elijah. Now, Elijah thought that he was the only believer in Israel. You remember the account. Bless his heart. And God came to him and answered him, saying, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Baal was an idol. So too at the present time, Elijah, there is a remnant chosen by God, by God's grace. And if it's by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were by works, it would no longer be grace, Romans 11, verses 4 and following. This account, which reaches back into the Old Testament that Paul is referring to, indicates that Elijah was feeling pretty good about himself because he had chosen to be loyal and obedient to God while the rest of the country had gone into rank idolatry. God had to bring him down a peg or two by showing him that fidelity to God had to do with God's choice, not Elijah's. And that contrary to Elijah's way of thinking, God had reserved a large number of believers for himself, a remnant chosen by grace, says Paul, verse 5. Since it was by grace, their fidelity had nothing to do with it. Rather, God had everything to do with it. This is extremely important. But you know, I would say that grace is a very hard concept for us to grasp. Because we live in a world, we live in a society in which almost all of the kudos of life, known as rewards for effort and work, that's how it comes for those that do well. We would be shocked if a stranger walked up to us and gave us a valuable gold and diamond ring for no apparent reason than he or she wanted to do it. we'd be shocked because thats we would immediately begin questioning, well, well, what do I owe you? People say things like that. What did I do to deserve this? That's another question. I can't accept this. This is priceless. You don't even know me. Or we might say, is this for real? So we would bring out the incredulity of it all. I mean, this just doesn't happen. People don't just walk up to you and give you a valuable piece of jewelry like that. And even if we could become comfortable with such a valuable gift, we might not express it, but we would likely think it, I wonder what he or she is up to. (laughs) We just can't handle it. What does he expect from me? Now, And we wouldn't be able to let it go. We would keep mulling it over in our minds day and night. Grace is like this. Grace is the goodness and the mercy of God given to people who don't deserve it, don't earn it, cannot justify it, cannot pay it, cannot find it in themselves, and any connection between cause and effect, I receive this because I'm worthy. No, they can't make the. They cannot connect the dots. Do you know that most people cannot handle grace? They cannot. They think they have to pay back. They have to earn the gift in some way, even if it's not by money. They cannot stand being beholden to another. Makes them feel guilty because of their own self-centeredness and their lack of charity. Well, you know, God isn't interested in your selfish introspection. (laughs) He's gracious to whom he chooses, and only those who receive his grace are his chosen. It's his decision, not yours. So that brings us to the question for this morning, which is this. For whom did Jesus die? It's an important question. For whom did Jesus die? Well, we saw last week that the cross was no accident. That's for sure. Jesus was not a, was not a helpless victim of political intrigue. Well, neither is the effect of his crosswork an accident. Jesus came to die for his people and to actually procure their salvation. He did not come to die for all of mankind only to have the major part of humanity reject him, despise him, reject his atoning sacrifice and go to perdition. Didn't come for that. We have this in our text. We have here the account of the good shepherd, which Jesus claims to be. Verse 11, verse 14. He compares his work to that of a shepherd and he discusses people in various terms. Look at what he says. The thief and the robber, verse 8, verse 10, also verse 1. The stranger, verse 5 the hired hand, verse 12, those he calls his sheep, yes, 11, verse 14, 15 and 16. He calls them his own verse three, which collectively comprise one flock verse 16. So you get the distinction. there's two groups of people here. The whole count breathe breeze of selectivity on God's part. Not everyone is a sheep of Christ belonging to his flock. But those that are, listen to his voice, calls them by name, verse 3. They refuse to listen to a stranger's voice, verse 4 and 5, but they gladly follow Jesus as he leads them onward, verse 4. In fact, when even threatened with danger, he mentions thieves and robbers, that would be the false teacher's, who might try to compel God's people to go in a certain direction, the sheep refused to respond. Verse 8. When a threat to life, to being killed or destroyed, verse 10, or ravaged by a wolf, verse 12, it's still no incentive for the sheep to abandon their loyalty to Christ. Why? Verse 14. I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep. They know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Or again, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Where did Jesus lay down his life for the sheep? Well, it was at the cross. And there, as we noted last week, He did battle with the thieves and the robbers and the wolves, the enemies of our soul. He did battle with Satan and the principalities of the air, and he won the victory, though it cost him his life. The hired hand, the religious leaders of the day, fled and abandoned the people, siding, as it were, with an enemy because they cared nothing for the sheep at all writes John verse 11 and 12 they only cared for their own reputation then note verse 27 and following see how the security of the salvation is tied into the determined grace of God for his people my sheep listen to my voice I know them they follow me I give them eternal life, they shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. From the initial entrance into the fold to remaining in the fold, safe and secure, the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, does all that's necessary to see that all that the Father gives him are cleansed and forgiven and guaranteed life eternal. Brethren, it doesn't get any more secure than that. John makes this very pointed point. Look at verse 37 and following. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoa. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Okay. I have come down from heaven. There's his mission. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And... This is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. Hallelujah. But raise them up at the last day. You know this little text? It's just packed with major truths that we would take to heart. First, there's the mission statement, verse 8. I have come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. I'm, I'm on a mission. And we need not guess as to what that will or mission was. He goes on. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he, God the Father, has given me. What does Jesus mean by not losing people? Well, redemption, as we noted last week, is the work of the cross. It is the payment to buy back what is in jeopardy of being lost. Sin has captured us. And sin holds us as prisoners. And you cannot free yourself. And I cannot free myself. The payment for sin is death. And if you make that payment, you will die and you will be lost forever. And may I say, as strongly as I can, there's no salvation in that. And so Jesus' mission statement is the equivalent of saying that he came to die for those the Father gives to him. He came to bring those people life, verse 51. And there are many other scriptures which speak plainly of Jesus' mission. The prophetic text of Isaiah 59, excuse me, 53, speaks of the suffering servant of God. And it reads, he was cut off, that would be killed. He was killed or cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. He didn't do anything wrong. But he was struck down for the transgressions of his people. My people, he says. In verse 12, it says, He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Or again, verse 11, By this knowledge, my righteous servant, Jesus, will justify many. He will bear, that is, pay for their iniquities. Many, not all. Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These are Jesus' words. Many, not all. Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When Paul was about to enter into the new mission field of that wicked city, Corinth. Jesus told him in a vision, Acts 18, verse 10, I am with you, and no one is going to attack you or harm you because I have many people in this city. Wow. So Paul would be harvesting God's people out of that general population. Hebrews 9.26 and the following says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the age to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once, so after that to face judgment. Even so, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So what I'm saying is that again and again and again, from the prophetic writings, from Jesus' own lips, from the writings of the New Testament, we are told that Jesus' death, his sacrifice, the pouring out of his blood was for many people, but not for all. There is no such thing as a universal redemption. The many are his people, not every last person on earth. His mission was to come and to seek and find his people. Secondly, this supports the results of Jesus preaching to the crowd. I mean, if that's why he came, shouldn't the results match up with the mission statement? Look at John 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Think about this. This audience had the best preacher of the gospel whoever was. The best creature whoever was the Lord himself but his message did not convince them to trust in him verse 41 says instead the Jews began to grumble about him grumble they can do believe they can and Jesus it took I mean it was so bad that Jesus turned to them and said stop grumbling among yourselves No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, verse 44. Why are you grumbling? You know, that's just a duplicate way of saying what he said in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And in our text, John 10, verse 27 says, My sheep, they're the ones that listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Have you ever, I, I knew a, a man in my church in Pennsylvania who was a shepherd. He wasn't really a shepherd. He had a little, I call it a gentleman farm. He didn't raise, he had a uh, Sheep and chickens. That was it. No cows. But he said, They won't listen. My sheep will not listen to somebody that just walks up and calls them. They can stand there all day and they won't follow him. They see me coming and I call them and he says they'll come right out of the sheep pen and they'll follow me to the water troughs or to a stream, or to open pasture, or wherever it is that he wants to lead them. And I thought, well, how realistic is that compared to what we're seeing in the scripture? My sheep follow me, and a stranger they won't listen to. So isn't that what discerns a sheep? Are we sheep, or are we goats? Are we Following Christ and his voice or not? People do not come to God on their own free will. He draws them by the irresistible power of his spirit. They don't enter God's grace because they're intellectually smarter than others and see this as a good thing to do. The shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 3. This is what we call in theology effectual calling which touches the heart and not just the ears. People do not believe. They do not repent. They do not come to life. They come to life and then believe and repent. Life precedes believing and repenting. And that's exactly what John says in verse 65 of John 6 No one can come to me unless the Father, what, enables them. That's pretty clear, isn't it? This is why the results of Jesus' preaching were limited as they were. This is why the results of any gospel preaching are restricted. God isn't saving the world through the cross work of his Son, He's saving his people. Matthew 7 verse 14 says, Small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Does that sound like mass evangelism to you? Only a few. May I say that's why Christians are in the minority among the people of the world? But small is big when you're talking about God. God is in the small, is he not? And not only does John 6 give us Jesus' mission statement, but the results of his cross work. But it guarantees Jesus' ultimate success. His mission was to give his life a ransom for many in dying on the cross, He actually paid the debt of his people. He drew them into the fold. Now, third, this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. That's the success of the mission. How many people for whom Christ died will make it to heaven? Answer? All of them. All of them. How many of Jesus' disciples who die will be lost to death and decay and hell? Answer? None of them. None of them. We have this in our text. John 10, verse 28 and following. I give them, he's speaking of his sheep, I give them eternal life, right? And they shall never perish. No one, which includes themselves, can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all no one can snatch them out of my father's hand and my i and my father are one they're one in purpose they're one in power they're one in invincibility they're one do you know the only way you can have definitive ironclad irrevocable assertive statements of assurance like this is because salvation from start to finish is solely dependent upon God and his grace, not the sinner and his decision. I wonder if our our Arminian brethren have ever thought this through. They who make such to do about free will have built into their theology the very seeds for their ruin. If indeed a person is saved because of their choice of Jesus, if the faith was theirs to contribute to the equation, I've heard it said that way, with Jesus doing the dying, and they doing the choosing of the coming, and then accepting and believing, they can deny and walk away tomorrow. What wonder if they've ever thought that through. And by the way, a true Arminian who understands his theology, he believes that. He believes, wait a minute, I chose God, I chose Jesus, I had to have faith, it was me, 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 so maybe in later life I'll become a reprobate and I'll choose not to have Jesus anymore in my life and that's okay too. And that's why they believe in loss of salvation. At least they're consistent, right? I did the choosing. I did the believing. I did the coming. So I can unchoose and I can walk away anytime I want. That's consistent. It's consistently wrong, according to the scriptures. But they believe it with all their heart. Where Jesus says in John six forty four that no one can be snatched out of the Father's hands. Not even we can do that. So the truth of John 6 is Jesus' mission was to die for a definite people, his sheep, given to him by the Father, And so the question arises, I'm sure it bothers all of us, how do you and I know that we are one of the sheep for whom Christ died? John 6, verse 40. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him or her up at the last day. Next week, I am going to devote the entire sermon to how you can know that you are one of God's sheep. But I don't think I can leave you hanging there, not even for a week. So how do we know? Well, in a nutshell, what is your relationship with Jesus Christ the Savior? Are you looking to the Son, to Him alone, as your only hope for seeing God in peace? Or are you mixing a little bit of good works with your faith? I actually had a believer tell me this. He said to me, Well, I think salvation is a little bit of works mixed in with a little bit of faith Paul says it's of works then it's no longer of grace and grace is no longer grace all this percentage business well i know that god did 99.5% In saving me. But I had to believe. I've actually argued with people. I Boy they get indignant with me. I had to believe. I had to believe. Yes I know about Jesus and the cross. But I had to believe. And I say to them. Well. You're putting an awful lot of emphasis on that. I had to. I had to. Sounds like works. Sounds like something you just had to do and if you didn't do it, you don't got it. And Jesus didn't do it. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 9. Grace is no longer grace. How much work do we have to throw into the mix to spoil grace? That's a good question. Well, I trusted God for 99% of my salvation. But I had to believe. Well, where'd you get the faith? Well, I had to have the faith. Now, we believe in faith. We do. But we believe what the Bible says about faith. That saving faith is what? It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, I'm sure you've all heard the illustrations. Well, faith is like a chair. You know, I have faith that when I put my weight down on this stool, it's going to support my weight. Not drop me to the floor, and that's what faith is in God. No, brethren, when I put my weight down on this stool, <laughs> that's not faith. That's knowledge, because I put my weight down on this stool a dozen or hundred times, and it always has supported my weight. Well, where do we get faith then? Don't people have faith? Yeah, they do. But it's not saving faith. Saving faith is the gift of God. We do not tell sinners, well, faith is like a stool or like a chair and you put yourself down on it you trust. But it's your faith. It's your faith. It's your faith. The Bible says the natural heart, the heart is the way God finds it in nature. The way you are found in nature, the natural heart is in hostility towards God. Say, oh, then I'm in trouble. Yes, you are. And God has to change your nature. So which comes first, the chicken or the eggs? Which comes first? A change in nature and faith or human faith and then the change. Well, it's the latter. No, it's the former. God must change our heart. And as he changes our heart, we believe and we repent. And God gets the glory because he changed the heart. The Bible talks about this in Jeremiah, the new heart. Right? Right? the Bible way of saying that you are what you are and if you're going to be a child of God, God has to change you and make you something that you aren't. He needs to grant you life. Life comes first and then faith. Not the other way around. Do you believe in Jesus? Not in the sense of accepting his historicity. There's many people that believe in him that way. But in the sense of trusting him as the living Lord who conquered death. And that is able to assert that he will raise you up in the last day. John 6 verse 40. He will give you eternal life. His gift. John 10 verse 27. If you can answer yes to these questions, you're among the sheep for whom Jesus died. Now next week, I'm going to deal with feelings versus facts. Feelings versus facts and many other issues when we talk about what about Jesus and me. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. I know this is humbling to us to realize that we're not so enabled as we think. We're not a prize that Jesus won for heaven, no. We're just wretched sinners that were scooped up by the grace of God cleansed and forgiven and made part of his family help us to see that we thank you for your abounding grace that you had a mission when you came to earth and that mission was to seek out your people among all of the population draw them to yourself Forgive them and cleanse them and incorporate them into your body, the church, the living body of Christ. You did that for us. You also did it to us. And apart from that, there would be no salvation. So help us to see this. Help us not to chafe at the fact that God is sovereign. Boy, if you were not sovereign, we would go straight to the pit of hell. Someone has to be stronger than Satan and his wiles, his wickedness, his power to pull people into perdition. Someone has to be stronger than Satan. And it sure isn't us. You did battle with him on the cross, and in the tomb, and you won, you were resurrected unto life, and he lost. I was to see it, to love it, to appreciate it. And if there's someone here today that doesn't know Christ as savior, they just think of him as a historic human being. A nice guy, a good man. Help him to see his divinity. That we're all, like Paul says, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account to him for our life lived here on earth. And if we don't have his blood shed for us, covering us, forgiving us, cleansing us, how are we going to come away from that judgment seat well, we'll come come away judged. That's what will happen. We'll come, come away condemned. But if the judge is our Savior too, wow, what a blessing. I know the judge. He's my Savior. Is my Savior going to send me to hell? Or is he going to rescue me? He's going to forgive me and rescue me as he has done. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal. And it's 476. 76.
3: It's in the red. It's 476. Oh, it's it's, I the got red. the
0: wrong hymnal. It's in Trinity. So choose red instead of brown.
3: <laughs> Elizabeth. Red, not brown.
0: We'll get it right. Let's stand. Lord we're thankful for the fact that you are the light of the world where is the world today well it's right where it's always been in darkness in sin and degradation in opposition to God a hater of Jesus Christ at least the Jesus of the Bible not willing to repent of sin loving it instead That shows our hatred. That shows our indifference towards God's will. Opposed to his mission, the salvation, he's come. The gospel has been preached here in America for centuries. And here we are today. I pray that you will help us to see in the face of Jesus, the only Savior there is. I pray, Lord, that you will bless us with his salvation. If we're here today and we're indifferent to these things, may you grant us repentance. May you grant us faith to believe, a faith that reaches out and grabs hold of Jesus. And by your Holy Spirit, draw us, Lord, and draw your people to yourself. In Christ's name we ask and for your glory. Amen.